Welcome to Orchard Community Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We are glad you are here to learn, grow, and deepen your relationship with Christ. This week's message is brought to you by Pastor Matt Hoyt. On April 13, 2001, a man named Luther Castile walked into a pub in Elgin, Illinois, and opened fire. He killed two people. He wounded 16 others. At his trial, he was unrepentant. According to the Chicago Tribune, when his lawyer asked him if he felt any remorse, he said, any feelings I have in that regard, I will keep between myself and the Lord. He also said this. He said, as ironic as it might sound, I am a passionate giving person, and I think I'm a pretty good person. Now you hear that and you think, wow, here's a guy who seems to have some serious denial going on, right? And I think that's true, but I also think that he's doing something else that we are all prone to. I think we're prone to denial too, maybe not at that level, but something else. You see, research shows that the vast majority of us human beings have this tendency to overestimate ourselves in just about every way. In fact, psychologists actually have a name for this tendency that we have. They call it a state of illusory superiority, the illusion of thinking you're better than other people or just better. And it means that we tend to inflate our positive qualities and our abilities, especially in comparison to others. And there have actually been numerous, numerous studies that document this, that document our tendency to overestimate our intelligence, our competence, our attractiveness, how hard we work, how much we work, our skills, to name a few things. Across the board, we tend as a race to overestimate ourselves vastly. Psychologist Mark McKinn said this, he said, one of the clearest conclusions of social science research, because of all these studies, is that we are proud We think better of ourselves than we really are. So we may struggle with a little bit of denial, maybe not as bad as Louis Castile, but I think we for sure struggle along with him with this tendency to overestimate ourselves. Now, one of the ways that I think that we are prone to overestimate ourselves as a race is in thinking about how good we are. Sometimes you'll often hear people say, well, people are basically good, aren't they? Sounds good, yet it's not without its difficulties because all you have to do is turn on the news and you hear stories like the one I just read and actually all manners of stories about the awful things that human beings do every single day. And that's where that word basically comes in in that statement. You notice people don't just sort of outright say people are good. They throw that word basically in there. And that word basically is meant to explain that although people aren't perfect and sometimes do wrong things underneath that, if you dug down really deep, I mean really deep, Down there somewhere in the middle, they're basically good, is what the saying is. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is that true? 
Now this morning we are continuing on in our series called Me, Key Spiritual Truths About Ourselves. And as we've talked about what we're seeking to do with this series is kind of sort ourselves out. To sort uh, out this person that I am. Wherever I, wherever I go, there I am. And so I'm a big part of, of how I understand this life. And I need to sort this person that I am out. So we're looking at some key truths about our identity. Uh, key truths about that will help us understand the way we live our lives. Our goals that will help us to understand the way we see the world. And so we've, we've been touching on things like this. We've touched on things like the fact that we're not God or the center of the universe, and that knowing that truth orients our lives to really understand that we have a God who is a creator upon whom we are dependent for our, to sustain us. It orients us to who God is and who we are. We've talked about how the goal of our lives isn't to live according to our own plan, but actually to seek to live into God's plan for us. We've seen how easy it is for us to become, in, the, in our self-centered me, to become so focused on just my spiritual walk and me and what's going on, and to forget that, that our faith, by definition, is uh, is meant to be lived in community with other people, that you help me to live my faith and I help you to live our faith because we're to do this together. We've been looking at key spiritual truths like these. Well, today we're going to focus on this popular idea in our culture that people are basically good. But the truth about us, the scripture says, is that we're actually not good. Now, it's not that there's no good in us. There is some good in everyone. But at the core of who we are, we're not truly good. What we are at the core is sinners who are in need of grace. So pray with me and we'll jump into this. Lord, we pray that you'd speak wisdom and power and truth to us. We would so like to believe, Lord, that we are good. And our world so often tells us that we are, despite the overwhelming evidence present in our world every day. So help us, Lord, to understand with balance the truth about who we are, the truth about who you are, and how those things fit together in a beautiful picture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to this question, what does the Bible teach us? Does it support this idea that we are basically good people? And so to answer this question, we're going to walk through a passage from the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at Romans 3, verses 9 through 24. We're going to begin by just looking at the first 10 verses, verses 9 through 19, and then we'll finish with the last few verses. So this again is the Apostle Paul writing in the book of Romans beginning in verse 9. It says this, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We know that whatever the law says, it says that those who are under the law, that all are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one 
one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, the, through the law, we will become conscious of our sin. So Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written to the church at Rome. And one of the really important things to understand about the church in Rome is that it had a whole bunch of Jewish Christians, Jewish people who had met Jesus and became Christians. And then at the same time, it had a whole bunch of people who were not Jewish, called Gentiles, who also had become Christians, and they were all together in the same church. And so one of the main themes of the book of Romans is is how should these two different groups of people in one church understand each other and seek to get along? Now, Paul himself was Jewish, and in the passage just before this, he had talked about how it was really a good thing to be Jewish. And that's not a surprise, because the Jews had been God's chosen people. They had this sort of special and historic relationship with God. And so having stated that in verse 9, Paul asks a really interesting question. He says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? And what Paul means by that question is he means, are we Jews better off? Are we more favored by God because of our historic and special relationship with God? And Paul's answer probably was really surprising to the people of that time because what he says to that question, are we Jews more favored? Are we better off? Paul says, not at all. Not at all, is what he says. It was good to be Jewish for sure, but Paul says that he's already made it clear in this letter that Jews and Gentiles are equal before God, and a big part of that reason is because Every single person, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, every single person is under the power of sin. We're all equal in that way. Paul does not say we're good here. Paul says everyone is a sinner even God's chosen people. Now, the book of Genesis explains that God, in fact, in the beginning, did make humanity good. However, God also made us free. And when the first human beings, Adam and Eve, used that freedom to sin, something happened to humanity. Sin was touched at the very core of our nature by sin, kind of like a virus or an infection. Sin did something to us. The Bible calls that the fall. And from that time on, our human nature has been broken and sinful. And what this nature is what makes us who we are at the core it explains the reality of the fact that we tend to be selfish, that we often want what is not good for us. We often want what is not good for others. Sometimes we crave what is wrong, and in some cases, even what is evil. That is the truth that Paul proclaims from the scripture about who we are. Now, I know 
that what Paul is saying here is kind of countercultural, as we mentioned, this message that people are basically good. In fact, there are a lot of people today who sort of would uh, deny the whole idea that they're sinful or that they're sinners, mostly, I think, because they don't really uh, understand what sin is. They think a sin is something really, really bad, something that I, of course, would never do. That's, I think, why they do that. But the reality of what sin is, as it's defined in the Bible, is it's all the wrong we do, the big things and the little things. In fact, a better definition of sin is that it's the way that all the ways in which we fall short of God's best for us, of God's desire for us. So to deny that you sin would be, in essence, to say that you are perfect. And we know that no one is perfect. And let's be really honest, we're not even anywhere near perfect. We're really far away from perfect. We're so far from perfect that it's like a dot on the horizon over there. Like we are, you know, sometimes we say like, I'm not perfect, like I'm just slightly imperfect, you know. That is not the truth of who we are. And we really need to own that reality of our lives. We all do wrong. We all sin. And, and if you think about it, we've talked about this before. It is so hard to deny that. If you just simply look at the way that the world is made up, if you just simply look at the way society is organized, if you take into account all the police and lawyers and courts and judges and armies that it takes just to make people play nice, you know, just to force people to do the right thing. When you take that into account, it becomes just so clear that we are sinful, that we, if we really were good, none of that stuff would be necessary. Now, in the same way, it's an interesting thing to observe that in our world, when someone does do something that is selfless and noble and good, it often really stands out in this world, doesn't it? People maybe make a big deal about it. Why? Because it's not normal, because it doesn't happen all the time. In fact, you see it on the news sometimes. Somebody did some great thing, and it's on the news because it is so out of the ordinary. If we were good, all there would be would be stories about that sort of thing. But we get the one because it's like out of all of the terrible things in the world, here's this one guy, this one, this one woman that did something good. And just the fact that it's so novel should also speak to us about the reality of this world that we lived in. And so on some level, we we realize that when someone has done uh, something good, I think we know that it's a noble thing because we know that they've triumphed over the me. We know that inside there has been a decision on their part not to be selfish, not to think of self first, to be, but to put someone else in front of themselves. We see the triumph in that moment and we want to applaud that. Now, This is what our faith calls us to do. Our faith calls us to constantly seek to overcome the sinful nature, to overcome the me that always wants to get for me, and it's about me, and I get, it's overcome that, and to seek to do what is right, and what is good, and what is pleasing to God with God's help. And it's always important to remember that part. Now, Paul is clear, as he's going on, that this is, in fact, 
not a new idea, the things that he's talking about. This is a, an idea taught in scripture for thousands of years. And so he, to illustrate this, he quotes from the Old Testament in verses 10 through 12, writes uh, this in verses 10, 10 through 12. He says, as it is written, there is no one is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, this is an amalgamation of a number of quotes from the Psalms. And we need to take a moment to think about Psalms. The Psalms were ancient Hebrew poetry. They were also put to music, so they were like song lyrics. They were poetry, song lyrics. And the thing about poetry is that we know that it's often figurative and it's gotten dramatic language to it. And so we see that figurative, dramatic, poetic kind of language here. But this quote confirms, even with its dramatic poetic language, that everyone is a sinner. In fact, there's not even one person, it says, who's ever lived who wasn't a sinner. And therefore, there's never been one person who could claim to be truly good, fully good in their own right. Now, except Jesus, but Jesus hadn't been born at the time the Psalms were written, so just to keep that in mind. It's also important for us to realize something else. There is a counterbalance here. When the scripture says that we're sinners, the scripture is not saying that there is nothing at all good about us. And I do think that sometimes we get that message, uh, our, our theology can get off and people can think that the message of scripture is there's nothing good about you at all. That is, that is not the method, message of scripture either. The Bible says that we're made in the image of God and although that image of God does get distorted by sin, it's never destroyed. We always have God's good imprint on us. We are bearers of the image of God. And that means that there is some good in all people. Even even the worst people, there's some good in them. And I actually think that this is kind of what people are are trying to say when they say, I think people are basically good. They realize that there is some good in all people, despite all of the bad stuff that's in us as well. And so they're they're really trying to, to name that truth of the good or of the potential good in people. In fact, when, when people say to me that they believe people are basically good, in response, this is what I always say. I always say, well, I wouldn't go that far, <laughs> given the wrong that people do, but I would say that I believe there's some good in all people. And a lot of times people will stop and they'll think about it and they'll actually agree with that statement. But I want us to know that the Bible is clear that this is not who we are, basically good, but that at our core, the truth about us is that we are sinners. That's what Paul is saying here. He's drawing from the historic psalms of our faith to make that case uh, so that we don't miss it. And, and there's another level here that we need to note, and it's that although there is some good in everyone, the Bible is also very clear that there's no part of us There's no part of the being that we are, the person that we are, that's not touched by sin. Every part of who we are 
is touched by sin, even when we are maybe our very best selves, even when we have our, our maybe our very best intentions in front of us, we're still always, every bit of us, is, is affected by sin. Theologians uh, call this truth total depravity. Now, total depravity, as we've talked about before, has been misunderstood because it sounds kind of bad. It, it sounds like somebody is saying, you are totally depraved in every way and there's nothing good about you. That's not actually what total depravity means. Total depravity means that there's just no part of us. There's no part of our minds, our will, our emotions, our spirit, our body. There's no area of portion of the being that we are that is not touched and tainted by sin. Sin affects every part of our being, every part of me, everything that I am, And everything that I do is touched by sin. Now, with verses 13 and 14, Paul again quotes from the Psalms. And here his goal is to describe what sin looks like and what it leads to. And again, he's using that poetic language of Psalms. He says, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. So what is sin like? Well, Paul says, it's like death. It's like deceit. It's like poison. What does it lead to? It leads to things like cursing in bitterness and death. And though, even though this is dramatic poetic language, at first it might still feel a little harsh to us. We might think, well, I don't, I don't do awful things like that. But what Paul really wants is for us to be honest about our sin. To be honest about the damage that it does in this world and to ourselves. I remember a time when I was a teenager and I was arguing with my mom and I said something horrible to her. I can't actually remember what it was, but what I remember was the look on her face and it was like I had stabbed her in the heart. I still cringe because I can see that picture in my mind. It was like poison. Have you ever hurt somebody that you love like that? It's a horrible feeling. When I was in college, I've mentioned I was very ill for a number of years, and I was put on some steroids, some drugs that had some really hard side effects. I didn't like those side effects. And, you know, being, what, 19 and, you know, the smartest guy in the world, of course, I decided uh, against my doctor's orders that I would, you know, just not take them for a while. And I damaged my health. And it was an awful thing. It was bitter. Have you ever hurt yourself with some kind of a horrible decision that you've made? A few years ago, one of my daughters did something. I can't remember what she did, but it made me angry. And I yelled at her, and I went overboard, and I scared her, and she collapsed onto the floor in a pile, sobbing. And it was bitter to fail as a father in that moment. Paul knows that we will try to downplay our sin, 
that we'll try to explain it away, that we'll say, well, at least I'm not like the guy who killed people in the pub, as though somehow that lets us off the hook for all of our sin and all the damage that we do. And Paul doesn't want us to do that. He doesn't want us to downplay this, the, our sin. He wants us to own it. He wants us to own the damage that he does. He wants us to see that it makes the world a worse place. He wants us to see that we hurt ourselves, that we hurt others, and that we don't live up to God's best for us. And this is such a deep truth about me. And we need to own this truth Because until we do, we're living in this state of disorientation where anything wrong happens, we want to put the blame on someone else or something else and never really grow up and take responsibility for our own actions and the damage that they've done to others and to ourselves. Never take full responsibility. Now in verses 15 through 17, Paul describes what it can look like to be gripped by sin, and he uses a quote from Isaiah. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. This is Isaiah 59, 7, 7. And if you think about it, this is actually a pretty accurate picture of humanity. When we are gripped by sin, and, and at our worst. And even though you and I, maybe, we wouldn't, maybe the truth is that we really wouldn't do something like go out and shed blood. The reality is that we will get on the paths that lead to such things. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you have heard be, uh, do not uh, commit murder, but I tell you, do not even be angry with one another. And the reason Jesus says that is because this anger is the road that leads to murder. So if we get on that road, even if we never go all the way down to the end and murder someone, we're still on a wrong path that is leading us away from God's best. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, do not even lust. And it's the same thing. Even if we get on that path of lust, even if we never go all the way down to the end of it and and cheat on our spouse, the reality is that if we get on that path, we're on a bad path. It's leading away from God's best for us. And just because we don't take it to its worst possible conclusions doesn't absolve us of the sin that we do. And we need to own that as well. Now, Paul offers one last quote in verse 18. It's from Psalm 36.1. He says this, There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he's really summarizing the reason that so often humanity just kind of runs headlong into sin. It's because so many people do not fear God. And, and what that means is they don't honor God. They don't, they don't respect God. Because if they did, if they did honor God, if they did respect God, they wouldn't do the things that Paul names here. Or at least they wouldn't as often do them because we're, we're still sinners. But verse 19, Paul says, Now we know... That whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And what Paul means is that God's law, the scripture, describes very clearly for us what is right and wrong, 
It describes for us very clearly how we're called to live. And these things aren't just nice ideas. They aren't good quotations to write on your wall. They aren't, they aren't pithy sayings for someone else. They're our call for how we're supposed to live, for the things that we are supposed to do every day. They're for me. They're for us. And when we know that, when we really get that God's law is for me, and because of that, we sit down and take a hard look at ourselves, if we're really honest, Paul says our mouths are silenced. They're silenced because we see the truth about ourselves, that we're not good or even basically good, that we're sinners, that we've done wrong, that many of our actions have made the world a worse place rather than a better place, that they've hurt us, that they've hurt other people. And you know, the worst thing sometimes is that the people we hurt most are the people we love most. I hate that reality of of sin. And Paul wants us to understand that we are accountable before God. Verse 20 The law makes our sin clear, and there's nothing we can do to wipe that out. We are accountable before God because of it. Now, the whole town, small town, gathered for an important trial that was going to be taking place. It was the the news in this small town. And, And as they Packed into the courtroom, the prosecuting attorney called his first witness. It was an older woman. She came to the stand, and the attorney approached her and said, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? This is the, uh, the prosecutor. And she responded, and she said this. She said, well, yes, I know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a boy, and frankly, you've been a disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people and talk about them behind your backs. You think that you're a rising big shot, but you haven't got the brains to realize that you will never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. (laughs) So he's just blown out of the water by this and can't think of anything. What what do you do now? So he has a a master stroke and he says, well, well, uh, what do you think of the defendant's lawyer? (laughs) And... uh, So she said, Mrs. Jones, uh, do you know the defense attorney? And she says, well, of course I do. I know Mr. Bradley Um, since he was a youngster too. I used to babysit him and he too has been a real disappointment to me. He's lazy, a bigot. He has a drinking problem. The man can't build a normal relationship with anyone. His law practice is one of the shoddiest in the States. Yes, I know him. All right, so the whole courtroom is blown away. There's just pandemonium breaking loose at all of this. And so at this point, the judge begins to bang his gavel on the stand to bring, you know, silence in the court, silence in the court. And uh, so then he invites the two attorneys to come forward, you know, to have a little confab up there. And he leans over the bench. And in a very quiet voice, he says this. He says, if either one of you asks her if she knows me... I will throw you in jail on a contempt of court charge. (laughs) See, Mrs. Jones knew them. Mrs. Jones knew the truth about these men. And Paul wants us to know the truth about ourselves. Because we can be in denial We can overestimate. We can put on a good front and and pretend for other people. 
But Paul wants us to drop the denials, to drop the overestimations, and stop living in the disorientation that comes with thinking that we're all good and to own that we're not all good, that in fact we are sinners. That's who we are. Let's look at the last little bit of the passage, verses 21 through 24. Paul writes this, and notice the but, because it's in opposition. But now, now the good news. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely through his grace and through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. Now, there's a whole lot in these verses here, but I want to focus on just the main point today. And the main point is this. Paul has proclaimed the simple truth about us that that we are not good. And he says it here. We fall short of the glory of God. We fall painfully short of his best for us. But then Paul also proclaims right here a greater truth than that. And that greater truth is that in Jesus, we have grace. We have forgiveness. We have redemption. There is, in fact, a way for us to be good, to be right with God. And that way is Jesus. And all we need to do to have it is we need to put our faith in Jesus and ask him to come into our hearts and our lives and to forgive and redeem us and to make us whole and right with God. Because Jesus is able to do for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. Jesus came and he lived this life, the life that we live. Only Jesus lived it the way that God desires, the way that we don't. And then Jesus took that good and right life of his and he offered it to God on the cross in place of our flawed and sinful and broken lives. And when Jesus did that, he brought us grace and he put right the wrong of our sin. The truth is that if we were basically good, we wouldn't need Jesus at all. But as people of faith, we know that that's not true. We know the truth is that we're not basically good, but that Jesus is, and that he is what we truly need. Amen. Pray with me, friends. Loving God, we just want to be clear about the truth of who we are, Lord, that we are sinners but that that is not the final word, that there is grace and life and peace in you. So we pray, God, that you would help us to own that truth about ourselves and to be oriented by it so that we reach out for what we need as sinners, and that is Jesus. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.